One, two, three. Woo! Hey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sad <laughs> face. Here you are, Emily. Oh, you have oh, one of mine. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you very much. What is always in front of you but can't be seen? I don't know. So Nav, who is off camera oh, and yes. off mic, is has just the, the correct answer to me, which is the future. Oh, oh I was fantastic. thinking it might be your nose. Oh, your nose. Oh, I've got a charade. I don't think I can do a charade. I don't think that's going to work on a podcast, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Thankfully. What was invented by the London baker Tom Smith in 1847? This is not a joke. This is trivia. Um, hot cross buns? It's very meta. No, the answer is Christmas crackers. Oh. oh, well, there you go. Interesting. Why are elevator jokes so good? Because they give you a lift. Because they work on so many levels. Oh. <laughs> Everybody's got their hat on. Delightful. Merry Christmas. Well, welcome to a special festive edition of the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse and with me are Emily Burt and Andy Ricketts. Hello. Hello. And we bring you the festive retrospective 2023. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah! Merry Christmas, everyone. It's around again. Absolutely. Yes, in this episode, we are going to be taking a look back at the big happenings in the sector during 2023. It's always a good time. We're glad you're with us. And straight away, out of the blocks to get us started, Lucinda is now going to deliver our annual festive news roundup. You've got three minutes to give us an overview of everything that happened in 2023. Ready, set, go. In January, Orlando Fraser, chair of the Charity Commission, warned that great charities could go under due to inflation. Shelter employees agreed to a 7% pay rise to end industrial action. The Church Commissioners for England said it would invest £100 million in projects to address its involvement with the transatlantic slave trade. In February, the Royal British Legion ranked top of a league table of charities mentioned by MPs on Twitter. In March, the Mine Boutique in London's Carnaby Street was named the UK's best new store in the Retail Week Awards. The government's Community Life Survey found volunteering numbers in England hit record lows last year. Another survey found charity workers to be among the happiest in the UK, though not when it came to salary and job empowerment. Oxfam hit back at critics of its new internal inclusive language guide. Three in ten large charities were found to have all-white boards. That's seven times higher than FTSE 100 firms. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced £100 million to local charities and community organisations in the budget. Charity legacy income was up more than 15% in the first quarter and it also hit a record high in 2022. In April, doors closed at the Foundation for Social Improvement, which supported small charities. The RNLI received a boost in donations after the far-right group Britain First demanded it loses charitable status. The Care for Calais founder Claire Mosley stepped down after admitting behaviour including threatening to drag a volunteer out of a room by her hair. In May, it was revealed that the National Lottery handed out a record £1.8 billion to charities and other good causes. Some 7.2 million people took part in the big helpout over the coronation weekend. Sickness rates among charity employees were found to be up 30% in the past year. In June, a thousand small charities wrote to Rishi Sunak asking for more support to help them survive. In July, the Lankelly Chase Foundation said it would close for being part of the traditional philanthropy model entangled with colonial capitalism. In August, the RSPB apologised over social media posts which called senior government officials liars. St Mungo's workers agreed a pay deal costing the charity nearly £6 million to end a three-month-long strike. SOS Children's Villages and the National 
Deaf Children's Society launched investigations after face-to-face fundraisers were found to be pressuring vulnerable people in Wales. The director of the British Museum resigned after reports of mass artefact theft were not followed up. More than 60 staff at Citizens Advice Hull and East Riding went on strike for four days. In September, Labour dropped plans to strip independent schools of their charitable status. Four in five charity shops reported an increase in theft and the infrastructure body Children England said it would close at the end of the year due to impossible financial challenges. Charities distanced themselves from the comedian Russell Brand after sexual assault allegations. The charity commission chief Helen Stevenson announced she would step down next summer. Conservative MPs called Girl Guiding's decisions to sell its activities centres and end its overseas operations after more than a century as utterly bizarre. By October, the Captain Tom Foundation was set for closure. Akivo's pay and equality survey found just 7% of charity leaders are from ethnic minority backgrounds. NCVO reported UK voluntary sector income was down for the first time in 10 years. Meanwhile, the Charities Aid Foundation found that more than half of charities are at full capacity for their services. In November, 500 Oxfam GB staff threatened to strike for the first time in the charity's history. The strike has just been suspended while a new pay offer is considered and more than 1200 charities have urged the government to uplift service contracts in the face of inflation hey remarkable (laughs) round of applause i think wow thank you how long did you spend rehearsing that I ran through it a few times in a not particularly soundproof meeting room this morning. So I got some funny looks when I came out of it. And the wonderful thing is I was hearing a lot of that for the first time because I missed completely the first half of this year. Famously, was not paying attention at all. So there's been some great stories. It's been busy, hasn't it? Yeah, well, it was entirely coincidental when I started the list and then ended it that the first and last should be talking about inflation. So we started at the beginning of the year with Orlando Fraser warning that great charities could go under in the next 18 months as a result of inflationary pressures. And then at the end of the year, more than 1,200 charities urging the government to uplift service contracts in the face of inflation. Yeah, definitely one of the key themes for 2023, that cost of living crisis is still rumbling on. Without doubt. But looking back at the past year, which is what this episode is all about, uh, I'd like to know what each of your top stories were from the past year and why. Sure. Well, I mean, for my own part, I obviously came back to third sector midway through the year, returned from maternity leave. And I think in the months since I've been back working on the team again, I've definitely noticed a bit of a sombre mood, I would say, in the sector. It's busier than ever. But for me, one of the things I'm seeing is for the first time, we are now really seeing charities start to close and start to wind down. And I think that's just the result of the financial pressures that they have been going through ever since 2019 are now actually coming to breaking point. So for me, one of my biggest stories of the year is the closure of children. England. Children England is the collective body for children's charities and in September they announced that they would be closing at the end of this year because of concerns about their financial sustainability. So this charity is 81 years old. It has a really, really long and respected history in the sector. But Kathy Evans, who is the chief executive of the organisation, said the closure was inevitable as a result of quote, extraordinarily difficult economic circumstances that the whole nation is experiencing. And she said that the financial challenges of sustaining the charity in the current context had just become impossible to ignore. And this is not just a cost of living 
crisis. Obviously, I think that has brought it to this point. However, government funding of the charity was actually stopped in 2013. So we also have to think about that austerity background, which is really the landscape for so many of these organisations. 10 years since that government funding was stopped, which made the organisation totally reliant on charitable funding streams. And then with only 18 months of reserves left in the tank. And now after the pandemic and those three years of financial turmoil, ultimately, they've concluded that they cannot continue. Cathy Evans actually wrote about the closure of Children England in uh, the magazine Children and Young People Now at the end of November. And she said, this is an existential crisis for the nation's children's charities and Children England's whole purpose has been to call that out and offer better alternatives. She said the organisation would continue to do this right up until its closing day. And then, however, she added, will become another loss on the balance sheet of charitable effort. And the sector I love will still face all the same threats, just without its umbrella body. Mm. And I really feel that Children England is not alone in the situation right now. I mean, Andy, you've worked in the sector for many years. I don't know if you agree that we're certainly seeing many, many more stories of closures coming in, probably predating my return from maternity <laughs> leave. But I think this is going to be an ongoing problem within the next year, unless there is an urgent and a really watertight solution provided. And until we get a big, consistent funding solution, we are regrettably going to see many, many more charities closing their doors. And the knock-on impact of that is going to be felt across the country. Mm. Without doubt. I mean, I think that the closure of Children England was a big shock to many people because it is, I mean, maybe not a household name, but sector-wide, it'd be a very well-known organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And for it to suddenly say, okay, after 81 years, as you said, we're, we're going to be closing our doors because we can't get the funding we need was a real surprise. But I think what we're also seeing at a very low level is the loss of jobs or even organisations at a very small, maybe parish type level where people who are not in the direct sphere of that charity maybe won't even notice. And I see that we're probably finding there's going to be more just local newspaper stories about a small charity in somewhere that's closing or losing a job or two. And the bigger picture of what that means for the whole sector probably won't be clear for some time because if Save the Children, for example, cuts 500 jobs, then people would know about it. Mm -hmm. But if 500 charities cut one job, that's not something that would ever really hit the headlines, but it obviously still has a major impact. And in terms of the number of people that's affected, it's the same. For the people who are reliant on those services, that can be a life-changing. Yeah, the Chancellor did announce in March the £100 million support for local charities and community organisations. So those are ex exactly mm. the kind of charities that you're talking about. Yeah. Have you seen any indication of, of that money reaching the charities yet? Yeah, I mean, well, we had the Charities Minister, Stuart Andrew, on Third Sector TV in June, and he was saying that the government is working in just as fast as it can to get that money out the door. And then, in fact, a few weeks later, they did start to make noises about that funding being made available but it, these things do take a long time it mm. seems and that money that came that 100 million pounds was really a pleasant surprise I think there'd been a lot of lobbying that had been going on behind the scenes with some of the big umbrella bodies and and some of the sort of key influences that have been trying to get the government to recognize the 
financial difficulties that the voluntary sector was in before the budget in March. And I think there was a lot of celebration among organisations that were involved in that when that £100 million was announced. I mean, it is actually said in the speech, which is really unusual, that the voluntary sector should get such a front and centre mention in the big budget speech. So that was, I think, seen as a big win. Hmm. But is £100 million enough? Well, no. no. <laughs> it's the short answer, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but then sector leaders find themselves walking that difficult tightrope of, well, we don't really want to be complaining about the £100 million that we got because we're pleased to get that. But the fact is, the black hole that the sector is facing is way larger. And we've seen, obviously, you mentioned in your roundup in recent weeks, the NCVO spearheading this campaign for an uplift in public service delivery contracts because they're just not keeping pace with inflation. Yeah, and that comes after the autumn statement where it was charities ignored. were all but ignored. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Emily. That was a lovely, sombre story Sorry, for apologies. this uh, festive roundup, but entirely warranted given the year that we've had in the sector. I'm going to jump in now with my top story of the year, which is another charity closure story, but with a slightly different angle and you could say potentially positive and that is the news in July from Lankelly Chase that they would be closing at some point in the next five years so they are a 60 year old foundation and they have pledged to dismantle and close themselves and divvy out the 134 million endowment that they have within the next five years and their reasoning for that is based on issues of justice. So they said, we view the traditional philanthropy model as so entangled with colonial capitalism that it inevitably continues the harms of the past into the present. We acknowledge our role in maintaining this traditional model and know that these times demand bold action from us all. And dismantling itself is bold action indeed. I found it interesting that the reasoning for this was that there are alternatives to traditional philanthropy that they are necessary they need to take center stage and move away from this traditional model of charity of giving but it does rather beg the question of what's going to happen to other foundations are other organizations which have their roots in this historical injustice in colonialism in imperialism are we going to see more of that coming up in the next few years? And if so, what's going to happen? Are the alternatives that could take its place going to be able to fill the gap quick enough, particularly at this time when there is such a dire need for philanthropic support? Absolutely. I am fascinated by the Lankelly Chase decision. I think it is so interesting. And something that I saw was that it evoked really strong feeling when this announcement was made. And so you have one camp of people who say, this is the only way forward. You know, these large philanthropic organisations have a responsibility to abolish themselves, to dismantle themselves. If you are really about radical change, and if you are about really you know, inverting that traditional Victorian, very patriarchal model, which is rooted in racism and is rooted in colonialism, then this is the kind of really ambitious action that you have to take. 
On the other hand, you have people arguing that that knock-on effect for the small charities and the charities that you were just talking about there, who are totally reliant on that funding, can't be ignored. And as you say, Lucinda, particularly at this time, we had Richard Garslow on talking about this mm. on the podcast earlier in the summer. And so for me, I think the thing that will be so interesting will be looking at the way that they wind down. They've said they're going to do it slowly over a period of five years. And I think whether or not this model is going to be successful will all hang in the ways that they choose to wind themselves down, how intentional they are about thinking where that funding goes. I am really, really interested by it. I do think it's very ambitious. And I think that their intention behind it is incredibly laudable. But it's definitely going to hang in how it bears out in practice. Yeah, and if you're a organisation that's in recipient of funding from the Lancani Chase Foundation, you're probably going to be a bit nervous yeah. mm. in terms of thinking, well, where are we going to get the money from instead? And putting the questions of colonialism aside, I mean, there's been a debate in the sector that's been raging for years about foundations and should they aim to spend out or should they aim to keep their endowment and then fund for longer? It's a really difficult question because obviously if they do decide to spend out now, they can have a much more dramatic effect in the short term if you suddenly spend your whole endowment off in one go or you spend it in a very short space of time obviously the impact you can have is huge but then you're gone and if all foundations decided to do that I mean crazy example but then what yeah because there wouldn't be any left but they would have done a massive amount of good in a short term you know it's, it's a very difficult question and there's always been other people who would say well, you know, foundations, they should have a minimum amount that they have to give out each year, which obviously these independent charities would strongly say, well, it's really up to us how mm. we're going to do that. How are we going to manage that process? Are we going to be here for 100 years or are we going to be here for five? Mm. It's a very difficult decision to make. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it begs the question of, is there potential to improve the existing model of philanthropy in which these organizations are rooted or does it need to be replaced entirely and if so how so mm. big questions Andy what is your top story of the year okay well I mean as a news editor I wonder if people might see me slightly as a bit of a glass half empty kind of person but no. I'm going to talk about something positive that I think happened over the course of the last year and that was the big help out now, if you weren't aware, this took place over the course of the coronation weekend back in May, where a group of organisations led by, well, really the Scouts and the RVS put together this big help out where they wanted people to volunteer on the extra day of that bank holiday weekend. Because as you may remember, everyone got given an extra bank holiday, which is really nice. And I think there was quite a bit of scepticism certainly for me, mm -hmm. and maybe in the sector, about how it was going to work, who was going to get involved, were any members of the public going to actually use their extra day to do any volunteering. And I think people felt that maybe it could end up being a bit of a damp squib or a bit of a just, well, it's nice for one day, but then it doesn't actually push the dial. I mean, you mentioned in your roundup earlier about how volunteering levels had hit a record low. I mean, obviously, there's a big COVID factor in that. And a lot of people have been lost to volunteering because of that kind of COVID interruption. But on the day itself, the figures that have come back were that more than 7.2 million people took part in volunteering 
on that particular day. There was something like 55,000 events, I think, that were put on by 30,000 charities over the course of that day. It became a huge thing. They even had the Prince and Princess of Wales were helping at some scout event. I think they were doing some archery and... I think Louis was driving a digger or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's just classy. And then we have a five-year-old operating heavy machinery. A hallmark of success. I know. And I wonder if other sort of seven-year-olds around the world are looking at that thinking, well, if that's what volunteering looks like, sign me up. Sign me up. Get me on that digger. But, you know, I think it did turn out to be a very successful event. And, you know, I'm not just saying that because I was invited to the press event where Bear Grylls was uh, was the key speaker. And the success of it has meant that they're now going to be putting it on again next year, only now over a three-day sort of long weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in June next year, where they want to be able to involve more schools, for example, and businesses, because obviously when you do it on a bank holiday, none of the schools or businesses are really open, so you can't really involve them in that way. But now they're hoping that this will open up that avenue for sort of extra volunteering opportunities and then hope that it will become a long-term event in future years and drive more people to volunteering. I mean, obviously, the, the proof will be in those overall volunteering numbers. Will we see a shift in the dial? We had Matt Hyde and Catherine Johnson from the Scouts and from the RVS, respectively, who were on our podcast talking about it in the lead up to the event in the spring. And they were very hopeful that it would. Mm. Obviously, we will see in time whether that has had the effect that they wanted. Yes, and that has been a really interesting thing to observe throughout the year, recognising that there was this huge drop in volunteering as a result of the pandemic and then people perhaps reassessing whether they really wanted to be spending so much time doing community and Mm. charity-based activities and and looking at the charity's response to that and we've had some really interesting podcast episodes this year from food cycle hearing from them about how they're attracting their pretty young demographic of volunteers and ensuring that flexibility is at the forefront and sort of ease of getting them on board signing them up reduce the level of bureaucracy And then also hearing most recently from Julie Bentley at Samaritans, they experienced a 30% drop in their volunteer numbers over the pandemic, which is obviously huge given Mm. the nature of their service and how critical volunteers are to maintaining that helpline and hearing about all the different things that they have been doing to just change the whole volunteering experience and make sure that it's open to the widest possible demographic and hopefully... The big help out will go hand in hand with those individual efforts by charities to to get those numbers back up. Yeah, and I think it has really shown that, generally speaking, I think the UK is a community-minded country. We can kind of get involved in these kind of things. And it's extraordinary when you think about the number of people who are involved in volunteering for organisations like Samaritans, where they're giving significant amount of time to help people in significant difficulty. The RNLI, for example, is built on the bedrock of yeah. volunteers. Mm. The Scouts is another one. You know, there are so many you could just go on mm. about the number of charities that are really founded on the basis of having people who will give their time for free. <laughs> Moving on to the next section. 
I'd like to find out what you both felt was the maddest story of the year. <laughs> Emily, would you like to start? Oh, was it mad or was it inevitable? That is my question. For me, one of the big mad stories of the year really has to be the announcement in September that the Captain Tom Foundation would close roughly three years after the charity was first launched. And I think even people who do not follow the charity sector perhaps as closely as all the people in this room do, they are bound to be across this story because boy, has it brought us a lot of content in the last couple of years. The Captain Tom Foundation as we know, has been the subject of a charity commission inquiry since June 2022. And that's mainly been dealing with those concerns that Club Nook, which is a company privately owned by Captain Sir Tom's daughter, Hannah Ingram Moore, and her husband, Colin Ingram Moore, had significantly profited from trademarking variations of the Captain Tom name with no objection from the charity. So listeners may remember the Captain Tom Gin. That was pulled from sale after failing to specify what percentage of its profits would go to charity. There was also the Captain Tom autobiography and various other books, which the Ingram Moores recently admitted to Piers Morgan, no less, that they had benefited from to the tune of £800,000. And of course, Hannah Ingram Moore also previously did serve as an interim chief executive of the Captain Tom Foundation with an annual salary of £86,000, which was a figure established after the Charity Commission refused to allow the Foundation to pay her £100,000. There has been a lot, and long-time fans of this podcast can revisit the episode that Russell Hargrave, formerly of this parish, and I recorded at the time that the investigation was launched. We went into all the particulars of it back then. But the Foundation which is the latest development in this saga, is now set to close. That announcement occurred a couple of months ago during an appeal hearing over the proposed demolition of a spa and pool building that was being constructed at the home of Hannah Ingram Moore. So the Ingram Moors were granted planning permission for the construction of said building, which they had called the Captain Tom Foundation Building in their initial planning proposal. And they said the building would be used partly in connection with the Captain Tom Foundation and its charitable objectives, such as, they said, hosting coffee mornings and presentations to the press. Who would then go on to use the spa? Well, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. A retrospective application they then submitted in 2022 revealed that a pool and a sauna had been added. Now, Listen, Lucinda, I for one love going to press meetings in a sauna. <laughs> I think it's very Scandi. It's very new wave. You know, there are lots of pop-up saunas coming up over the South Coast. I think it's very nouveau. But, but it is difficult to make shorthand notes. It is difficult, probably, to make shorthand notes <laughs> in a sauna. And it did not pass muster with the local authority who has ordered that this building is now demolished. And it was during that appeal meeting that... A solicitor for the Ingram Moors said that the Captain Tom Foundation was highly likely to close down. Surprising, I think, no one. But I think it might be maybe best for all if this particular foundation is one that is dismantled and as, as quickly as possible. 32, 33 million pounds raised yeah. by a hundred year old man doing laps of his garden. It's just an unbelievable story. Mm. But it is such a shame that it's descended into this. Now, this is the thing that his legacy is effectively tarnished by the activities of his foundation. And who are we to say how we would react if suddenly we had an elderly parent who was thrust into the national limelight in that way? 
but it does seem like it's been a, a tale of mismanagement and calamity since Captain Tom died. Andy, what's your maddest story of the year? Okay. Okay. Well, this is one about the bird conservation charity, the British Trust for Ornithology, which unfortunately found itself banned from Twitter, well, now X, after it tweeted about woodcocks. (laughs) So the the charity... (laughs) basically found its account frozen back in January when it took advantage of the RSPB's Big Garden Bird Watch to tweet about its upcoming woodcock survey. Now, obviously, everybody will know the woodcock is a breed of bird and they wanted to promote their upcoming work. But the British Trust for Ornithology said that in response to the tweet, Twitter prompted it to verify its date of birth. And (laughs) the problem with that was that... The British Trust for Ornithology was only effectively founded in 2009, so it wasn't really old enough to be accessing woodcock content, it (laughs) seems. So they had their platform frozen, but thankfully they did manage to get their account unfrozen as it just suddenly appeared eight days later with no comment from Twitter. Well, that's a lovely one. And it is a mad story. (laughs) It's been a crazy time for the bird charities on social media this year, hasn't it? (laughs) It has indeed. (laughs) Now, my mad story also came out of a conversation on Twitter, now X, but it happened in January. So it was still very much Twitter then. And it is in a different sort of vein from your madness story in that it's shedding light on the madness of the bureaucracy and structure of the funding system facing the sector today. So this was a comment posted by Emma Piers, who is the founder and chief executive of the Selfer Children's Charity in North Yorkshire. So a small charity, chief executive. And she was complaining about the fact that she and another staff member spend a third of their time on applications for funding and out of the charity's £350,000 annual income, they have 35 funders contributing to it. Mm-hmm. So each of those funders has different reporting requirements, and she calls it a logistical nightmare. And it clearly resonated with a lot of other charity execs, particularly small charities, just saying something needs to change. This system needs to be overhauled. Why on earth are we having to communicate and submit applications and reports and all the rest of it to 35 funders? Mm. Absolutely. And I think, especially when you think about that small charity sector, so many of these organisations are one-person outfits. A lot of the time, they are voluntary, entirely voluntary run. And we hear so much about the bureaucracy of the funding process, the complexity of funding applications and all the various checkboxes that you have to go through to even be in with a chance of receiving funding. Everyone talks about this need for it to be streamlined. I certainly believe that it it must do because it's, you know, especially when you're a small outfit and you don't have whole teams which are dedicated to getting this money in, you will end up just spending a huge amount of your time just trying to get the next batch of money through the door. And we all know, as we've said numerous times before on this podcast alone, in the current environment, nobody has the time to be doing this. Merry Christmas. Moving on to 
the trends that we have seen over the course of the year. Emily, you are presumably going to talk mainly about the second half of the year, given that you were on maternity leave up until the summer. Well, I mean, something I have definitely been interested in and following it is the sort of campaigning that charities are going to be allowed to do. This is going to become, I think, more and more prominent as we head into the new year and most likely a general election. But we saw, for example, the row to do with the RSPB on social media, which you touched on in your wonderful festive roundup there. We had a series of tweets go out that accused senior ministers, including the prime minister, of being liars over breaking promises to do with nutrient neutrality. So the charity apologised, the charity commission launched a compliance case. But I think, again, it just is an illustration of the care that charitable organisations are going to have to be demonstrating when they are thinking about how they plan to campaign as we go into that very febrile pre-election era. And what I think was very interesting is that Orlando Fraser, who is the chair of the Charity Commission, recently said in a speech that he expects charities to go high as politicians go low. His sense is that as we get closer to that election, politicians are going to go I'm paraphrasing here because he is a QC, but go deeper and deeper into the gutter in terms of their rhetoric. But he has an expectation that charities don't meet them on that level. And he said that, you know, there is a higher public expectation of charities and their models of behaviour than there are of politicians, which I thought was interesting in of itself. Mm. Andy, what trend have you seen? Yeah, well, mine is, I mean, very much driven, I think, by the cost of living crisis and the rampant inflation that we've been seeing. We've seen strike action really taking hold at a number of major charities in a way that I've not seen in my time at Third Sector. I mean, you've seen people at major charities like Shelter, Oxfam, most recently, St Mungo's staff were out on strike for weeks earlier in the year. Three months. Yeah. And we haven't seen that kind of thing in the sector certainly not in my long time at third sector. And I think it's very much a microcosm of what the sector is going through at the moment in terms of it's obviously facing squeezed income, fundraising is challenging, but also their staff are facing a situation where they're having to bear greater costs at home. Everybody's got to pay more for their fuel these days, for their petrol, for their food, for just about everything, it seems. So staff are not unreasonably saying we need to be paid more in order that our wages are not going backwards. The charities are saying, well, our income's not going up in anywhere near the level that inflation is going up. We can't afford to pay you anymore. And obviously, some organisations, these situations have really come to a head and, and it's and it's caused strike action. And then my trend was flexible working. Mm. So we've seen a lot of change in the past year, a lot of it prompted by the enforced changes to working practices from the pandemic. But it's been really interesting to see how charities have built on working from home. So earlier in the year, the Chartered Institute for Fundraising found that hybrid jobs, i.e. working from home and in the office for charity fundraisers had increased by 900%. Mm. We did a long read earlier in the year looking into how the RNID is now working entirely remotely. They've got rid of their office. 
the vast majority of organizations are following hybrid working. And then we've also seen a rise in job shares and even a reduction in the number of working days in a week. And um, we had the podcast episode just a couple of weeks ago with Friends of the Earth and Gingerbread talking about their move, one of them in trial stage and Friends of the Earth now going forward with it permanently to bring their staff hours down to 30 a week and remove one day entirely. So that's a sign of charities responding to all of these other financial pressures and I suppose finding ways to incentivize their staff where wages are not keeping up. I hope that we will see those kind of flexible models just becoming more refined, more widely practiced. And if we could all get to a four day working week by let's call it 2026, that would be <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see what that happens. I mean, you're boldly predicting that we're not going to go back to anything that isn't a hybrid model. Of it. But obviously, recently, we are seeing some organisations, some large organisations wanting their people back in the office more. Now, the COVID pandemic is mostly behind us. Who knows what that position will be like in 5, 10, 15 years time. Well, just a few key stories there in what I know has been a very busy and a very intense year for the charitable sector. We will be back with a fresh new episode in the first week of January. We'll be joined by Sue Tibbles from the Sheila McKechnie Foundation and Jane Ide from Akivo. And they'll be lifting the lid on 2024 and what that might have in store for the voluntary sector. So do join us then. But in the meantime, from myself, Lucinda, Andy, from the entire team at Third Sector, I would like to wish everybody a very happy Christmas, a very happy holidays, and a special shout out to anybody who might be working over this festive period. Keep doing what you're doing. Amazing work. We couldn't be without you, charities. Thank you also to Nav and to everyone who has worked in the studio to support us this year. I wish everybody listening a very restful break and hope to see you in the new year.